So we're, I'm a big believer in artificial constraints. Uh, I think in this, in all walks of life, but especially in investing, you need to set up guardrails. Otherwise, you'll just get consumed by all the noise and expiring knowledge that's out there. Uh, to that point of kind of having guardrails towards like almost being too hardwired to improve, you know, I'm, I like to introduce provocative terms. So, you know, one of the terms I talk about internally is this notion of creative laziness, right? And it's kind of a, why I like it is because when people hear the term lazy, they immediately recoil because in fields like this, you're kind of trained and, um, and um, you know, pushed and incentivized to really just work hard, right? And think that hard work is the answer to many things. And you know, everyone loves grit, right? Like everyone despises laziness and they love grit, right? And I think that's a, in, in many ways an inarguable kind of um, view on both those terms. But I, I do think um, grit without a guardrail can mean, can lead you astray, right? I think it can mean rushing into things head first, right? With, with just brute force. And not asking a creative laziness to me is that just before answering a question, asking, is this the right question? Hmm. Or find the lowest part of the fence before you cross it, right? And I think uh, there's sometimes an elegance to that, uh, that, you know, that creative laziness brings and a a solution. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, leaders, and people looking for high performance in business and in life. Now, each week, I sit down with one of the world's most successful people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, mindsets, and habits that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. And if you want access to over 300 episodes and insights with game changers and change makers, head to whatgotyouthere.com, where you can also subscribe to my Momentum Monday newsletter. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? Today on the podcast, I am joined by Sanjay Ayer, who is a portfolio manager at WCM Investment Management. Now, you might remember WCM because back on episode 312, I interviewed their CEO, Paul Black, which is one of the most popular episodes in the history of this show. Now, on this episode with Sanjay, we explore many fascinating topics like how to improve your return on time in a profession that involves creativity, how Sanjay uses artificial constraints to improve his process, and some of the most impactful strategies and exercises the team at WCM uses to develop their people and assess talent. Please enjoy this conversation with Sanjay. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I've got something really special to share with you. My new book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is out now. Inside the pages, you'll find 365 daily meditations carefully designed to challenge, inspire, and catalyze personal and professional evolution. To get your copy, head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com or go to Amazon and search Masterpiece in Progress by Sean Delaney, or you can just click the link below. Can't wait for you guys to read it. Are you a leader, executive, or CEO who everyone looks to for all the answers? If so, who are you turning to when faced with your own challenges? This is a silent burden many high performers face. And if you've been looking for a trusted coach to be in your corner, one who offers clear, unbiased insights, fortifies your confidence, ignites clarity, and challenges your perspectives, then I've got something special for you. I'm opening up five exclusive spots for my executive life coaching program that starts January 1st. Now, this is an intensive 90-day one-on-one coaching program blending strategy, accountability, 
and deep self-introspection to get clarity on what will make for a fulfilling life and how to unlock your abilities to make that life become a reality. Now, these 90 days are going to change the trajectory of your entire year. And just so we're clear, this isn't for the people who are just going through the motions of life. This is for the people who are in pursuit of their best life. And since you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you're one of those people. But remember, I am only accepting five new people this year. So if you're interested and want to reserve your spot today, send me an email right now, sean at whatgotyouthere.com, and I spell Sean, S-E-A-N. Can't wait to start working with you. Sanjay, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing great. Great to be here, Sean. I'm excited to dive into this, and I want to start with the invisible. I would love to know, has there been a mindset of yours that you think has just been incredibly positively impactful for your life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, if to zoom out a bit, you know, I kind of, uh, my answer would, would have evolved to that question over the last 5, 10, 15 years. And, and that's really because I, I view my profession, which is investing, as, as, as really a, a kind of a wonderful, wonderful platform for self-discovery, right? I can't think of a profession that reveals your strengths, your weaknesses, your biases, your, 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 your flaws, as well as investing goes. So, you know, I've learned a lot about myself over the years and then maybe what's ma- you know, gotten me to this position. And, um, you know, I, I would highlight two probably attributes that you know, I, I kind of uh, really think uh, helped me along the way. Um, you know, the first would be optimism. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's somewhat of a cliche to talk about optimism, but I think it's incredibly uh, important, especially in fields like investing where the odds are you know, stacked ag- against you. Uh, the base rate of investors that, you know, stand the test of time is is not that it's not that great. So I think you need to have that forward momentum that kind of an undercurrent of optimism provides. And I'm not, I'm not personally an in-your-face optimist. I don't think people would walk away after a first impression and say, "Wow, that, that guy's just you know, <laughs> incredibly optimistic." But um, and it's funny, I used to think of optimism as a intrinsic quality, but I've come to believe it, it can be strategic and, and developed. You know, as, uh, I was, I don't know if you watched that show on Apple TV called Shrinking. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy uh, with Harrison Ford and, and Jason Siegel. But, you know, there's a supporting character uh, in that show who always uses the line, everything goes my way. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a cringeworthy line. It's played, it's an annoying character quirk. But you know, I was reading an interview with the with the showrunner, Bill Lawrence, and, and he talked about how he uses that line, everything goes my way in real life, um, almost to annoy his friends, but it's a strategic kind of, uh, you know, facet because in that field, in media, uh, in, in show writing, you're, you know, dealt, you know, body blows every day, you know, with scripts that get turned down and, and, and whatnot. It's an incredibly competitive field. So I do think strategic optimism, optimism has carried me forward. Um, and then, Sean, I think secondly, just embracing cognitive dissonance has really helped me a lot. Uh, and, and I'm sure your listeners know cognitive dissonance is when you, when, you know, when you have a worldview and when you're confronted with something that conflicts with that worldview, uh, for most people that causes discomfort, right? Like the response is to, to avoid it, rationalize it away, um, you know, engage in mental gymnastics to kind of resolve those conflicting views. Uh, and I've learned and I've really come attuned myself to really embrace and lean into that tension of cognitive dissonance, kind of 
holding two conflicting thoughts in your head and not lose the ability to think well. Um, and the breakthrough moment for me, Sean, was I used to think that was hard. Like that, that sounded very hard. It was going to be a harder task mentally to do that, to, to really hold those opposing thoughts and, and lean into that tension. But once you get there, it's actually incredibly liberating, right? Because all the biases you know, that you and I and everyone kind of faces in the world, whether it's confirmation bias, recency bias, anchoring, um, all those biases really melt, melt away, right? When, when you're able to see, see truth for what it is and see change for what it is. Um, so I think it's a good mindset in all walks of life. Uh, I think it's highly applicable to financial markets, um, which we can get into. But um, and it's something I've de- I think I intrinsically had, but really developed it over the years. And, and so I would pair those two. Uh, you know, uncheck optimism can lead you off a cliff, but optimism paired with an embrace of cognitive dissonance, I think, can put you in a, in a good spot um, in many walks of life, but especially investing. You mentioned a minute ago that you were able to break through that. That's why I started this off around the invisible, right? That was a mental mm-hmm. limit you were able to get through. I'm wondering, because you're someone who's incredibly self-aware, looking back at that breakthrough ability, what allowed you to do that? What were the steps leading up to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, um, in high school and, and, and even in college, I had a, I had a major insecurity. Um, and I was very self-conscious about the notion that I didn't have as strong opinions about as many things that everyone else did. It just seemed like you talked to everyone about anything and they would have a strong view on it. And I, I kind of viewed that as a, a character liability, if you will, and, and said, you know, I really should have opinions on any hot topic that comes up or any historical uh, um, uh, piece of evidence or fact uh, or, uh, that comes up. And um, my response to that was to kind of salt for it and try to learn everything about everything, right? Uh, so that I could sound smart, right? And have an answer, have a quip and feel part of those conversations. Um, but it, it clearly under the hood felt very forced, right? It felt like an act. Uh, I was doing it because it was something I needed to do to to get by kind of socially and otherwise. Um, and the breakthrough moment, I, you know, really the first breakthrough moment for me was taking a behavioral psychology class in college that really just dealt into the notion, the basic question of why do people have different opinions given the same set of facts, right? Or the same set of circumstances. And learning about the why some of the biases people have, uh, some of the entrenched beliefs and where those beliefs come from. Um, really, I started to see maybe maybe I was in the right for not having so many opinions about so many things, right? I, I definitely had strong opinions and always did, but the breadth uh, was not as widespread as, as seemingly everyone else. Um, and, you know, one way to test that, that, that you kind of learned in that psychology class was ask anyone with a strong opinion uh, to explain the opposite of that belief or ask them what it would take to change their mind. And it's startling, right? How quickly people can crumble and not even put together, you know, a semi-coherent response to that very basic question, right? It just kind of bounces off their brain. So that really got me to kind of, let's explore the why, why people have two different beliefs rather than obsessing kind of over the what, what the belief is. Um, and that resonated me. It, it found out it suited me well and it alleviated me from that kind of burden of uh, feeling that I had to know everything about everything, which, um, uh, you know, I, again, had viewed as an insecurity and, and afterwards did not, I viewed it as almost an asset. Hmm. 
Speaking of assets, you were mentioning a few minutes ago just around optimism and cognitive dissonance is you viewed these as skills you became highly attuned to that you were able to develop. And I'm just wondering for you, what does it look like behind the scenes with you? What are you doing to develop these type of skills? What goes on outside the office that has given you the ability mentally to dive into these, which is something a lot of people don't do, and then keep exploring and going further on them? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I find myself just hardwired to a fault. Uh, and in fact, I have some morning routines to kind of counter this uh, in a way, but hardwired to just continually try to get better and never feel uh, I kind of fear complacency um, and, and a static life. So I always have this uh, mental energy uh, towards kind of picking, picking apart kind of what I'm not doing well and trying to improve on. And I'm not exactly sure, and I don't know if I'm giving it enough thought, like the root cause of that, but I frankly, you know, as long as I recall, I've always had that kind of internal internal drive uh, to really push forward. And, and I've almost helped uh, create a, you know, played a role in creating a culture here at my firm to kind of make, make everyone kind of give them the opportunity to go down that path. And I think that's, that's really important because I started off by saying investing is a platform for self-discovery. Um, but it's only if you allow it to be, right? And I think whether self-inflective or because it's just a profession and how it works, most people are not uh, allowed to be or willing to kind of view investing as a growth mindset kind of industry, right? That you can get better, right? Uh, there's this notion of always trying to show off and act like you have all the answers and have a smart quip to every question. Um but really kind of thinking through holistically in my life, like how do I, you know, this notion of deliberate practice. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard about it, talked about it. Uh, it's been popularized. Uh, but the key, the key issue with deliberative practice is you need high, high signal feedback, right? So it's great to say you want to get better, but do you, do you have the feedback, the raw material uh, to, to use to get better? And um, you know, in my profession, you, you don't have it, right? If you're a long-term investor, you, you're not making that many decisions. You have long feedback periods, like three, five, 10 years to know if you're right or wrong. And even then there's so much noise in between um, that you're be a very low signal feedback, right? So for me, it's about, I've been really driven in the last 15 years of um, you know taking that hardwired kind of intrinsic quality, getting better, but making sure I was channeling it in a way that was acting on um, you know, a, 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 a set of uh, high signal feedback. So how to create that feedback. And then, you know, as importantly, Sean, just how to create time to, to learn. I'm very, very mindful of like creating guardrails and um, in my life, both personally and professionally to, to channel that energy in the right way. Because I, I do think uh, that can tip too easily to trying to be a perfectionist and almost never seeing the positive thing, positive of things. So, uh, and we're taking a step back and just enjoying uh, kind of where, where you've come uh, over the years. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I view uh, developing qualities like the two, the two I mentioned. I'd like to expand on some of those guardrails in a second, but I'm, I'm mm -hmm. genuinely intrigued. You mentioned that internal drive, that mental energy. Is this more a pulling towards that voracious thirst for more knowledge? Or is that more being, I don't want to say fearful, but not liking the, not exploring your potential? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. I think it's both. You know, I, I, I do, I've had a fear of, um, 
I don't, I don't feel as much anymore, but if you ask me five, 10 years ago, I had kind of a fear of being a fraud, you know, and everyone has this imposter syndrome, but you know, I, I kind of view, yeah, I work at a firm where I'm given a, a, a wonderful clean slate to kind of paint a canvas around how to build a, an effective research culture and research team. And I have strong views on, on how to do that, uh, but I never want to get caught in just like, you know, talking about things and not acting on them. Uh, so really trying to model kind of the behavior and this kind of platform I'm trying to build. Um, yeah, that really comes, that's kind of an internal, um, that's kind of an internal energy and drive. And it comes from a little bit of fear. You know, I think over the years that fear is, has waned and now it's kind of a more organic kind of positive um, positive energy and vibe behind that push. But uh, I think that, it did. It did probably already start from there. Insecurity uh, to some extent, and uh, fear of being a fraud um, as another as another source. You you have a great line I wrote down uh, in pre- preparing for this, and you said, "I think everyone needs a little healthy imposter syndrome to do great things." You want to expand on that even? Yeah, I think everyone ha- has it, you know. And I think uh, I think everyone. I'm sure some people don't, but you know, I think it's just it's a little bit sad to me that people. Um, uh, you know, feel some for some people it can really drag them down the notion of imposter syndrome, right? And and so, in my view, you can accomplish so much more in life if you just get the insecurities out of the way and they're just totally open about them, right? Um, you know, I want I'd like to get to a point, and I think we have in our team where people you can joke about each other's insecurities, right? Uh, everyone has them, right? But I think for a variety of reasons, for many many professions, kind of steer you towards this notion like theater, right? Like acting, like maintaining some label, sounding smart, you know, having a quick answer to every question, pretending you're infallible, um, you know, sounding the part instead of being the part. You know, I think getting better at your craft. So I think the industry um, and many, many professions just do a disservice to, you know, you, you, know, you all know, I mean, as you're a kid, you know, you ne- none of these things will even come to play at all, right? I think um, the notion of growth mindset and getting better and asking dumb questions. I think that's intrinsic to people, but they're almost coached out of it in professions like this. So I think imposter syndrome is something I'm, yeah, I think everyone, at least in our organization, have, but we worry there's a badge of pride that we're kind of a bunch of imposters and we're going to lean into it because to not be an imposter is to do what everyone else is doing, which is to achieve kind of mediocre results, right? Which is kind of what our industry as, a, as an aggregate has achieved over the last uh, many decades. So why would you want that to be the outcome? So let's let's embrace kind of being imposters, being outsiders in a way, um, and use that as an asset. Are you a leader, executive, or CEO who everyone looks to for all the answers? If so, who are you turning to when faced with your own challenges? This is a silent burden many high performers face. And if you've been looking for a trusted coach to be in your corner, one who offers clear, unbiased insights, fortifies your confidence, ignites clarity, and challenges your perspectives, then I've got something special for you. I'm opening up five exclusive spots for my executive life coaching program that starts January 1st. Now, this is an intensive 90-day one-on-one coaching program blending strategy, accountability, and deep self-introspection to get clarity on what will make for fulfilling life and how to unlock your abilities to make that life become a reality. Now, these 90 days are going to change the trajectory of your entire year. And just so we're clear, this isn't for the people who are just going through the motions of life. This is for the people who are in pursuit of their best life, 
And since you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you're one of those people. But remember, I am only accepting five new people this year. So if you're interested and want to reserve your spot today, send me an email right now, sean at whatgotyouthere.com, and I spell Sean S-E-A-N. Can't wait to start working with you. How have you walked that tightrope as you evolved in the firm and even now hold a, a higher leadership position where you're being looked to even more, both in continuing to lead, showing your strengths, showing the knowledge, the wisdom you have accumulated over the years, but also showing that you do make mistakes and also allowing those younger people to see that. You know how it is that tightrope where you want to give them enough ability to make mistakes and learn, but also to develop their own confidence. I'm just wondering how you do that as a leader in the firm. Sure. Yeah, I think we lead with vulnerability. You know, I think, um, you know, sometimes for many people, they need trust before they're vulnerable. And we, and we try to flip that script and say, it's very hard to get true, true trust unless people think everyone in the organization, but especially kind of people in leadership roles are truly vulnerable. So uh, I talk about mistakes all the time. Um, I, you know, well, we had, a, we had an offsite a couple of years ago where my colleague, Mike Trigg and myself, uh, who I co-lead the team with, uh, we had a 50 points slide deck, which talked about every mistake we made over the years, right? And, and these were cringeworthy mistakes that we looked at and said, oh my, I can't believe I thought that at that time. Um, so there was many reasons to paper over those mistakes, but if you really want to create a climate where people do feel uh, that it is open, that they're going to make mistakes, that it is forgive and remember, uh, not forgive and forget, uh, you have to you have to just model that behavior, right? So I think uh, leaning into those, and, and really kind of we left uh, that presentation with the notion of, look, if we're not as a collective cringing at the work we're doing today, five, 10 years from now, like we're not getting better, right? But let's set that as the bar for getting better. Let's look back five years ago. And, and for many things you do ask, I can't believe, you know, I, I wrote that or did that piece or made that transaction. Um, I think that's a, that means you're on the up and to the right journey. Um, and, but really, I don't think there's any shortcut. You just have to model the behavior uh, and, and almost over-index to it to, to make that point. Talk to me about that mindset that you have that a lot of people in your field and that listen to this podcast end up falling into, the category of not feeling like they've done enough, constantly trying to get better. And you said you've put up guardrails intentionally to counterbalance that. And I'm wondering what that looks like. Yeah. Um, I mean, just can you restate the question, Sean? Because I just want to make sure I, I got the, which way you were going on it. Yeah, you were just saying about that internal drive that you said you came hardwired where you just continually mm -hmm. wanted to get better, never feeling like you've, you've done enough research or put in enough time. And that's, a lot, that's a, something a lot of us deal with. And I'm wondering, you said you put up guardrails. What do those guardrails look like so people can kind of balance the scales here? Yeah, so we're, I'm a big believer in artificial constraints. Uh, I think in this in all walks of life, but especially in investing, you need to set up guardrails. Otherwise, you'll just get consumed by all the noise and expiring knowledge that's out there. Uh, to that point of kind of having guardrails towards like almost being too hardwired to improve, you know, I'm, I like to introduce provocative terms. So, you know, one of the terms I talk about internally is this notion of creative laziness, right? And it's kind of a way I like it is because when people hear the term lazy, they immediately recoil because... In fields like this, you're kind of trained and um, and um, you know pushed and incentivized to really just work hard, right? And think that hard work is the answer to many things. And you know, everyone loves grit, 
right? Like everyone despises laziness and they love grit, right? And I think that's a, in, in many ways an inarguable kind of um, view on both those terms. But I, I do think um, grit without a guardrail can mean, can lead you astray, right? I think it can mean rushing into things head first, right? With, with just brute force and not asking a creative laziness to me is that just before answering the question, asking, is this the right question? Hmm. Or find the lowest part of the fence before you cross it, right? And I think uh, there's some type of elegance to that, uh, that, you know, that creative laziness brings and a, and a solution. Yeah, I think of um, uh, the Nathan's hot dog eating contest as a kind of a funny example of this, right? You got this guy, Kobayashi, who won you know, many of these, you know, how many hot dogs can you eat in, I don't know, was it three minutes? Um, and he won it time and again. And he effectively just reframed the question, right? As opposed to how do you eat more hot dogs? He said, he asked, how do you make hot dogs easier to eat? Right? And that's a zoom out. And the way he did is like split the hot dog in half. And I don't want to get into all the, the gory details, but it was a, I think grit can cause you to zoom in too quickly. Right. And, and so for me, one of the guardrails I put is always think about um, how can you zoom out before you delve into anything? Um, and we have, a reflection week twice a year here at WCM where turn off the stock quotes, turn off the news flow. All you're going to do is kind of sit back and reflect. We have in the office here two airplane seats. And the reason we, business class airplane seats. Uh, and the reason we have that is one thing I've learned is most of my best ideas come from um, airplane rides back from a research trip where I'm sitting across one of my colleagues uh, and we're just downloading, right? And just having a conversation that would never happen in the office. And it's a great kind of reminder that, um, you know, getting out uh, of the office, carving out time to have conversations that you wouldn't have in the office can, uh, can just generate creative solutions to things. Uh, whereas if you're too gritty, you know, and you're just in your office with a closed door every day, you could be highly, highly productive but you might not be effective, right? And I think it's very easy, especially in creative fields, to conflate busyness with productivity. Um, and so having a bunch of guardrails and frankly, just being mindful of that and never wanting to fall in that trap of thinking uh, of just like unproductive busyness, I guess, uh, is something I, I think a lot about. What does this look like? I don't want to get super nuanced here, but I'm just curious. Sure. What does that look like day-to-day, week-to-week? How do you, How do you navigate that? It's tricky because it's it's kind of great as everything I said sounds. You know, there is just fundamental blocking and tackling yeah. you know, that this profession requires. You have to write up reports. You have to analyze companies. You have to have meetings. Um, but kind of the undercurrent and the language we use internally is this notion of team return on time. Right? To really think about how do you measure productivity in fields where there's some creativity involved, right? That's an incredibly, to me, interesting the design question, uh, an incentive question, um, because it's, you know, the ways productivity is traditionally defined, what well, doesn't capture it, right? And I think, um, and I think, you know, for us, it's about how do you pair both those mindsets, get the blocking and tackling done, but always have this kind of notion and mindset and opportunity cost recognition. I think opportunity costs are the biggest challenge in investing, you're not knowing what you're not doing. Um, spelling those out, having processes for discussing those. So here's what I'm going to work on this week, our Monday meeting. Here's what I'm not going to work on this week, right? So being very kind of open and here's why, right? Um, 
So being very open about how you're using your time, how you're trading off your time. And then everything you do, you have to argue why is this better for the team, right? I, I think we don't want to be one of these siloed organizations where people are just optimizing for their own journey. Uh, there has to be a mindset of team contribution, how you're giving back and making the collective better. So day to day, it's it's frankly a challenge. I wouldn't say we've solved it. I think things like Reflection Week, um, things like um, various artificial constraints we have uh, can help. But it's I, I like to I like to consider it's almost a gravitational pull, right? If you don't have those constraints, you're going to wake up every day, check your phone. See the three stocks that were down ten percent. Come into work, analyze why they were down. Call a you know another broker, figure out what's going on in the markets. Chat with three people. Um, look at all your stock quotes for that day. All of a sudden, it's lunchtime. Incredibly reactive yeah. mindset you're going to have, right? And you're just going to be playing defense all the time. So um, you know, I think we're all we built a high trust team where we can call each other out now. On like, hey, that's expiring knowledge. That's low team return on time. Um, things of that sort. So I think you could hold each other accountable because even left to my own devices, I would kind of devolve into all the stuff I I try to guard against. Looking back, do you think this would have worked the first 10 years of your career? I'm just thinking about some of that blocking and tackling. I'm wondering how much of those fundamental skills do you just have to put in the time before you can actually use some of that open space to then leverage that? I do. That's a great. I, I I hadn't thought about that, Sean. But I think that's a great point. I, I think unless you go through um, that hard journey and do the blocking and tackling, kind of get dealt a bunch of body blows, make a bunch of mistakes. I, I think it's you know, we're big believers in learning from history, but there is a pragmatism that you know learning in, in a vacuum, learning something that happens to yourself is much more powerful than reading about it mm-hmm. happening to someone else, right? And I think it. It just resonates in a much different way. So, um, yeah, if I started my career here and said, hey, let's build this platform where people are free to you know, think different and get better and uh, tune out all the noise. Yeah, I think people would have looked at me and said, OK, that's great. This is like this is an academic exercise. Like, come on, get it here, make a few mistakes and let's see what you have to say. So I think building that, building that credibility and, and frankly, building, going through that journey such that. I can empathize, you know, and I can perspective take for a newer analyst coming in and maybe making those mistakes I made, but letting, you know, sitting back a little bit and letting them kind of learn, you know, the balance you you kind of represented, letting them kind of go on their own journey um, and learn from those mistakes and maybe take it in a whole different direction. You know, we're big believers in like, I don't have all, you know, me and my co-leaders, we don't have all the answers, right? So, uh, trying to force fit something to to too precise a degree is not the way we want to go. We want entrepreneurs, innovators internally, and and for people to innovate, I do think they have to go through their own journeys. So, um, as I think about your question, I, I think I needed to uh, you know, several at bats at least to to get get to a point of credibility and authenticity around you know some of these points I've been making. Yeah, it's funny we, we so often avoid that pain. But usually it's that pain that provides the most amount of light, right? Like we really need to go through that failure, that hardship to get a, a deeper level of clarity on things. So I'm wondering for you, what, what were some of those, those really deep, dark moments that you had to experience to get to this other side? Yeah, I laugh uh, because, you know, I'm kind of infamous or uh, famous, I guess, internally for going through several midlife crises. crises. Um, so then that's a serious strength. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So one of them... Uh, <laughs> 
that that is one is a fun story we like to share internally is you know I went to a Taco Bell analyst day back in 2010, um, and this was when our products were not doing well. I think you know, I just joined, you know, just was a few years in. I had no kind of great level of self confidence at that point. One of my stocks that day was down yet thirty percent after the market um, had closed, and so I went to this Taco Bell analyst day and. Yeah, I'm wearing a suit and tie, um, which, you know, for your listeners, usually at WCM, we dress in flip-flops and shorts. So I'm wearing a suit and tie. Um, they start uh, just showing a commercial, right? A, a kind of a preview of a, a commercial Taco Bell is going to air about their new innovation pipeline, right? So it might have been the new cheesy gordita, right, at that point. Um, and so they show this, a bunch of investors, probably 250 investors in the room, all looking very serious um, and smart. And during that commercial, I just kind of, time just kind of froze. You know, it's just one of those moments where I just took a step back. I looked around the room and I saw people taking notes, right, about this commercial, this new product Taco Bell was innovating that was going to, you know, be 0.001% of their current revenue and just a not, not you know negligible part of any intrinsic value Taco Bell um, would have. And by the way, Taco Bell is part of a larger conglomerate known as Young Brands. So just like complete noise, right? This is not a relevant commercial or piece of information. Yet there's 250 people in this room who are taking themselves seriously and taking notes, right? Which is bad enough, but guess what? There I was taking notes too, right? So it's, it so the notion of fear of being a fraud, at that point of time, at that point in time, I would I would talk about all the same stuff, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about today about biases and platform and all this abs, you know, this abstract uh, uh, aspirational way of I, uh, how I would build a research culture and a research scene. Yet I was still doing what everyone else was doing, mm -hmm. right? So that, that kind of hit me. Wow, this is I'm I'm kind of a fraud right now, right? Like I'm saying all these things and I'm doing what everyone else is doing. And it kind of set me um, on this, you know, it wasn't that dark, but it set me on this kind of journey uh, where really intense self-reflection. I'm like, hey, what am I doing with my life? Uh, why am I kind of spouting all these things, but not acting in a way that's in accordance to kind of how I will say I want to spend my time? Uh, how should I even think about time as it relates to investing, how one should spend their time? Um, and it, it, it kind of made me realize that investing is one of these professions that, um, and it's a handful out there that have a quotient of creativity to them where it's hard to evaluate talent. It's hard to know if you're any good process and outcome are very hard to correlate. Um, there's no defined playbook on how you should do your job. Um, and then I went on this journey of just like thinking about that and understanding, wow, this is really interesting. In all these fields where there's some creativity involved, you would think it's a blank slate, right? So you have this wide canvas to be creative. And there'd be so many different ways people do things, right? To be high variability in how people work and how people behave. But it's the exact opposite, right? Counterintuitively, everyone, you look around and everyone's doing the same thing, saying the same thing, acting the same way. And so that... Really, Sean, I don't think it's ended. It's been a 15 plus year journey of like peeling that onion. Like, hey, why if if this is a creative industry, why why do people behave so similarly? Uh, why is it paradoxically an uncreative industry? And 
And it's kind of resulted in a lot of the solutions I've come, come with is going through that pain of making those mistakes, reflecting on it, and just iterating on um, you know, how we could build something different here. Correct me if I'm interpreting this wrong. You go through a pain, you have a setback, you end up asking yourself a new question. And then what it seems like you do really well is you reframe it to a more interesting question in a route. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I think reframing, um, I don't know. I've kind of, I, I kind of think there, if I could teach my kids two superpowers, it'd be, one would be reframing um, and the other would be just what I call counterfactual balance. I think those two things are incredibly important. Uh, reframing, especially in investing, where you are dealt by, you have dealt setbacks all the time. And if you let those kind of just uh, get the most of you um, and bring you down, uh, it's going to be a problem. So I think in periods like that, I, I found myself to be adept at, um, and this might come from the optimism point I made earlier, at always trying to reframe and think, you know, how can I, how can this end up being a positive five, 10 years from now? Can you just walk me through how you teach that to your kids? I don't know if I have yet. So I think I always, uh, I'll just always try to reframe things. So it's, you know, oh no, it's raining outside. I'm like, yeah, we get to go play in the rain and do X, Y, Z. Or yeah, we get to do a family game night, right? So I think anytime there's complaint, you try to just immediately, instinctively turn it into gratitude, right? Like here's why something good can come out of this. So I think um, almost intrinsically, just instinctively, sorry, just responding to issues like that with the optimistic reframing. Um, but it's interesting. I don't know how you found this, Sean. Like every kid is different and there are just like, um, yeah, three kids now and some of them are just hardwired to, uh, view things in a different way and you have to almost coach them out of it, whereas others are more receptive to reframing. So it's, uh, it's an interesting journey. That's parallel journey, I guess I'm, I'm experiencing on the, on the parenting end. Yeah. One of the things I've seen out of leaders. So now we're out of the kids realm with the reframing. One of the things I've noticed is it instantly jolts them in a new level of awareness where they uh, uh, don't go down that downward spiral. I think so often that's what people look for. They try to just continue the negativity. It's hard to get out of that. And I think the best leaders, they kind of jolt them with that reframe. And that kind of just opens up their mind to a new possibility to move forward out of that downward spiral. Um, so I think it's something that, that the good leaders that I've seen do, and I know that you guys practice that at WCM. Another one I want to dive into there, because you said there's two things you're going to teach them, counterfactual balance. Let's expand on this. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You 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 asked kind of some of the guardrails I have, and um, you know, I think it's it's dawned on me in life. Um, you know, this the counterfactual, just like alternative scenarios I could have played out, right? So kind of the opportunity cost idea, and there's upward counterfactuals, which is like how could things have gone better, and there's downward counterfactuals, which is how how could things have been worse. And it, it's dawned on me over the years that we just, as humans, we just get constant triggers on our poor counterfactuals, right? Like what could have gone better? You're stuck in traffic on the way to work and the lane next to you is moving much faster, right? You notice that, you get annoyed, you switch lanes, you're in a grocery line, uh, you're in the slow, always in the slow moving line. You come home, you talk about it. You never come home and say, oh, I was in the most normal moving line or the fastest moving line at the grocery store, right? That doesn't dawn on you at the time because you don't, See what yeah, it uh, downward counterfactuals are non-events, right? By definition, for the most part, they don't happen. So you're just constantly battling this almost up, uphill treadmill of being uh, inundated with these kind of upward counterfactuals throughout your day of what could have gone better, and it almost uh, acts as an impediment to happiness, 
right? And and to the point of being hardwired, I think I was just always naturally hardwired to be sensitive to upward counterfactuals. Oh, we missed this stock. Uh, we should have bought this stock. It went up a lot. Yeah, uh, it's going to really bring me down, right? But I'm not talking about, wow, we missed this other stock and it went down 80%, right? I don't, um, I'm more sensitive to the upward counterfactuals. So I, I've made it a point in my own life to help be more aware of downward counterfactuals, what could have gone worse, um, bring them to life, uh, both at work, at home, um, and just talk about them more, right? And so try to introduce downward counterfactuals, surface them, create them if need be. Yeah, I think there's the the study, and I think this is somewhat of a contested study, but you know, the when they analyzed Olympic medalists, right, they found that bronze medalists were happier than silver medalists. Mm. Right, which is a counterintuitive conclusion, but you know, they hypothesized it was the silver medalist was engaged in an upward counterfactual. Oh, I just missed getting gold by you know two seconds, whereas the bronze medalist is instinctively confronted with that downward counterfactual. Yeah, I was two seconds away from getting nothing, getting no medal. Right, so because down, you know, there there's a different trigger there. Uh, you just get a level of happiness and contentment, right? So about it, I think it correlates with the reframing point um, we talked about, but just bringing, I think humans are just not, one of the things we're worst at is non-events, things we don't see, right? When you're sick, you're complaining, oh, I can't wait till I get better. But you never wake up saying, I'm so happy I'm not sick, right? So uh, finding, it's really hard, and I haven't perfected this at, at, at all, but just finding ways to kind of tip the scales a little more balanced that you're not just always letting those upward counterfactuals get you down. I'm always intrigued by this journey where people kind of cross over another one of these invisible thresholds where they kind of go from knowledge to wisdom around certain things. And it's clear they've attained a level of mastery, whether it be intellectually or actually skill-based. And I'm thinking about this for you. And you said, bring those counterfactuals in earlier. And I'm wondering if that would have taken out some of that innate drive to always kind of have that you know what, I could have done this better. I could have pushed further here. And it makes me think about those bronze medalists. I wonder if they're even on the podium if they didn't have dreams of gold. So I'm wondering how you navigate that, thinking back to people earlier in their career and throwing those in. Yeah, I think everyone's different, you know? And I think because I'm just hardwired in a way that's kind of, you know, always being highly sensitive to upper counterfactuals, I don't need that. You know, I need that balance on the downward side. There are other people who kind of view things the other way, and maybe they're not as kind of driven or kind of passionate about self-improvement. Just doesn't, they, they want to self-improve, but they're not, um, doesn't kind of, they don't lose sleep over it, right? And so they might need more in the way of upward counterfactual. So I think it's just, you got to find a pragmatic balance because what you're optimizing for is the short-term and the long-term, right? You want uh, that, that journey, that sharp arc of self-improvement uh, but you also want it to be durable, right? And I think you don't want to get burned out just because you're just, you know, you're just so consumed with um, the negativity that upward counterfactuals could bring that eventually you just flame out, right? But you don't want that complacency where if you didn't care about that at all, um, you're just going to kind of waste away. So I think it's uh, no almost just having self-awareness and being you know, very in, attuned to who you are intrinsically and then figuring out is there a balance to be had, I would say. Um, is how I think about it. And every person's a little bit different and all, and also it's a pendulum that swings, right? I think over time you can overcorrect one way or another. This has me thinking about the strategic thinking 
that WCM has put into the Reflection Weeks. I think you said you guys do that twice a year. I'm just wondering what that looks like and what you hope comes out of that. Yeah, so it's, um, it's number one, it's open-ended. So we're not per- too prescriptive about what you need to do. The, the key point is a mindset of reflection, right? Because again, you're drawing guardrails in an industry where you know, this week, most people would just be, you know, reading earnings transcripts 24-7, right? It's earnings season comes in. And, and so um, just creating that notion of this is for reflection. This is for looking backwards in the spirit of getting better. Um, one thing we do mandate during that week um, from a process point of view is what we call return, return on time audit, where everyone kind of looks back over the last six months uh, and talks about how they spent their time what were the highest team return on time activities they, they, they did? What were some of the lower team return on time activities upon reflection? How would they like to change their return on time over the next six months? Uh, actions, they, like a game plan for doing so. And so that's almost a, a blueprint for how people are thinking about their own time and the team's time. Uh, and we didn't know this going in, but it turned out to be a great like mechanism for self accountability. Mm-hmm. Now you have this document you would look back yeah. six months ago and say, "Wait a minute, like I said I was going to do this and I didn't execute on it at all." And sometimes there's reasons why, but in many cases, like you just didn't uh, you you just didn't execute to the standard you held for yourself. So that team return on time usually that takes a day because you know both people hear a journal and they kind of track how they spend their time. And we have a we built an app internally that. Um, where people log everything, every decision they make and uh, in the spirit of getting better. So uh, we have tools to help that process. Um, and then beyond that, it's open-ended. So, you know, some people do case studies where they look back and analyze a bunch of recommendations they made. And, you know, here's what I learned. Um, they could do um, a, a thought piece, like here's how I grew as an investor. Um, you know, I wrote this thought piece about... Um, this notion of curiosity and, you know, if there's something as passive curiosity versus active curiosity in my last reflection week, some people have written like documents of what it was, what's it like to work with me? You know, so to get a lot of that, um, the noise out of the way, the friction out of the way, like here's, here are my pet peeves, here's how I like to work, here's how I like to have meetings and like, um, just under, so we can understand each other better and like have a shortcut to, to getting to that point. So it's pretty uh, it's open-ended, but the only kind of mandate we have is that we're trying to time audit and just we don't want to walk by someone's desk and, you know, they're reading the earnings transcripts or what have you. You know, I think we try to like hold ourselves accountable to the the spirit of reflection. You said in the last one, you put some thought into active curiosity versus passive curiosity. Can you share mm-hmm. your ideas around that? Yeah, it's still something I'm kind of wrestling with, Sean. I, uh, yeah, it just, it dawned on me recently that, um, yeah, almost all financial analysts were curious, right? I mean, I think if you just hire for curiosity, that's not that great of a effective of a filter. Um, but I think there's a danger of a passive curiosity, which is, it, it manifests in a few ways. So I'll define active curiosity as like taking agency over your learning and then communicating in a way that like pushes the ball forward. Right. And I think in many learning organizations, which is kind of what we were trying to build at WCM, there's this tempting, there's a temptation to take the tack of like learning by osmosis. So just, hey, invite me to a bunch of meetings. Let me join group trips. Um, uh, I'll consume a bunch of email flow and I'll, I'll get better. Right. Uh, and I think that's a pat, that's almost a passive manifestation of curiosity. Um, and it's almost, 
it might be sound harsh, but it's almost extractive, right? Like you're viewing the team is there to serve you as opposed to you serving the team, right? And there has to be a balance there. And, and so it dawned on me that we just had a few people here who are um, you know, highly actively curious. You know, they learned, they just learned with a very proactive mindset. They don't wait for others to come to them uh, or that learning to come to them. They just carve out time to get to speed on the whole portfolio, even though that's not their mandate. Um, they're just intrinsically interested in what other people are working on, right? They're just proactively asking questions as opposed to waiting for a meeting. Um, and so they really have kind of think about that give-take uh, balance as it relates to agency over learning. And then uh, one of the things that started to annoy me a little bit was I, I'd start to see people just put thoughts out there to get their own kind of thoughts out there, right? As opposed to thinking, there's an email chain before you. How can I take what's come before me and build upon it or redirect it? Uh, as opposed to let me just get my views out there. Or, let me just throw this like big picture question without making any any kind of effort to push the ball forward or come up with even a fledgling solution. So, um, you know, it's really early this year, I kind of decided, you know what, there's probably a point to be made here. Uh, and one of the the outcomes of that was to make our meetings much smaller, right? Because I thought we were devolving into, hey, everyone's just showing up because they kind of want to learn, which is like, a, it's a noble, it's not, they're not, no one's doing that, um, um, you know, through a net, you know, there's no like hidden agenda. I mean, people just legitimately want to learn, but it's creating almost a hidden tax on the system, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, I'm sure you've thought about like meeting sizes and some of the some of the issues it creates. But I think because we had created that culture of like learning and osmosis, it was some it was a bit of a challenge, right? Trying to make those changes, and I think putting this thought piece out there on active curiosity kind of helped elucidate why it got to a point where we felt like we did have to make those changes. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I've got something really special to share with you. My new book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is out now. Inside the pages, you'll find 365 daily meditations carefully designed to challenge, inspire, and catalyze personal and professional evolution. To get your copy, head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com or go to Amazon and search Masterpiece in Progress by Sean Delaney, or you can just click the link below. Can't wait for you guys to read it. The idea to write that piece, I'm wondering what other questions do you gravitate towards to spark new ways of thinking for yourself? No, it's it's funny because you know, there's sometimes where you know, I go, it's, I think it's very hard to force fit creativity. Right. I think you just have to create a lot of space where, without stimulation. Right. So probably my most creative period, Sean, was when I lived up in Santa Monica and I drove down to we were in Laguna Beach here, our offices, and I do that drive every day. Right. And this was before I knew about podcasts. And so you just had time to think. Right. And and I found myself uh, just being highly creative, right? Because it's kind of going in an airplane and and not using the Wi-Fi, right? Uh, I just was on a five-hour flight the other day and I came back with a couple of really creative nuggets. So it's about like, in my mind, it's about immersing yourself in the world and then almost taking a step back, zooming out and just thinking about creativity. And there's times like, um, yeah, I didn't think last year I was very creative. I didn't come up with many novel ideas. This year has felt a lot better, right? And um, you know, why is that? Did I do anything different from a design standpoint? I'm not sure. Uh, but there, 
I don't want to, we never want to, I never want to get to a point where I feel like I'm forcing content out there, thought pieces out there that aren't authentic. And so, you know, what I like to do is just have a, you know, notepad or an Evernote um, and just have a bunch of like fledgling ideas or thought pieces that come to mind. And, and they, you know, most of them never see the light of day. And then a few, you'll just, there'll be two or three things where I'm reminded of it and they add to it over time. And it hits a threshold where I say, you know what, this has kind of reached a point where I think there's enough meat here to turn it into a piece and it, it merits kind of the time I'm going to re- you know, ask from everyone to, to read it. So um, it comes in bits and starts. I wish it was more consistent, um, but um, yeah, I would say uh, there are times like this year where it's felt a lot more um, free flowing as far as kind of create creativity goes. Have you ever zoomed out over five, 10 years to see if there's any, co- any commonalities or patterns to the time of year that your insights seem to spark the most? I have not. That might be an interesting yeah. one for you to do. Um, I've found some certain correlations with that uh, amongst different people. Um, let's call them different types of creative energy at different times of the year um, that seem to be pretty resonant of a pattern, um, which would be <laughs> a fun one to look at. But I, I'm also intrigued because you're so intentional with your time, your return on invested time. Also, you have these, these fun explorations into creativity. So at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned reading that Bill Lawrence interview. Mm. And I'm intrigued why you're reading an article about a showrunner when you're so driven to improve your investing ability. Yeah, I think uh, it's hard to convey this in a way that, you know, will resonate with everyone. But, you know, I think you have to, you know, one of our core values of the firm is fun, you know? And I think when you decompose creativity, and I'm sure you've given this a lot of thought, like, that's fun as part of it. Yeah, I think when you, when you have fun, when you watch a YouTube video, I mean, you've read probably the book Creativity Inc., right? Like Ed Catmull talks about, like a lot of people, when they see a group watching YouTube, they'll like, if you're, you're a bureaucratic organization, you'll snuff that out and say, hey guys, get back to work. But a lot of those creative moments come from that time. And and so I think in investing, you know, what's, what's fun is you can borrow all, from all walks of life, right? So I'm just... Um, you know, I think if I, all I did was be very insular and think about best practices in this industry and, you know, how to create the best investment firm and just be blind to other fields of knowledge, I think that does a disservice, right? So I think, um, you know, looking at how other creative people think in different industries, uh, how people have gotten to their position, uh, trying to connect patterns. And, you know, I think the commonality there, which, you know, in part drew my attention was, you know, media, um, Bill Lawrence. I mean, that's a creative and that's highly, highly creative industry, right? So thinking of, um, about, it's easy to draw lessons from like process-driven industries, like whatever, Dan or her business system, like very uh, cut and dry. But, you know, how can you also intelligently borrow practices from more creative industries like that? So that's, that's kind of how I'm wired. And I think part of it's um, intentional and part of it's just making sure you introduce uh, the groundwork for um, just having fun and, and something coming out of it, right? I think you can get, uh, if you get too, if you get too consumed with personal productivity, it just becomes a different, this is my view. If you become too consumed with that, it's just a different form of busyness, right? So you just have to be intentional. Around, like, what do you mean by productivity? Uh, how are you measuring it? Um, and if you don't allow for some of that you know, softer uh, work, uh, look, reading about things that, you know, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, 98% of the time won't have any payback. 
you're going to miss that one or two percent that has those will lead through those, you know, breakthrough moments. You know, you talked about. Have you read Rick Rubin's new book? I have. I have. I enjoyed it. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. It's it's interesting, right? It's a, I mean, that's a highly highly creative field, and I think he talk talks about um, you know things like the just being having a clean slate as it relates to any rules, right? And not thinking about um, thinking thinking about things from a true first principles mindset. And you know, listening to his podcast here and there, and reading that book, it did. Um, it's refreshing, right? In a way, it's like almost the times in his career where he just kind of rebuilt everything from a clean slate. Like, forget everything I've learned. Let's kind of, you know, take this in a new direction. And all that stuff you learned, like the important stuff, will filter back in. Uh, but you'll cut out a lot of maybe the bad habits and nonsense that's been practiced. And you look at his success, you know, obviously over a long course, course of time, over different genres. And there's something definitively to be learned there. I mean, there was stuff in the book where I was like, I don't really know how to apply this, but there are definite nuggets that were, you know, quite interesting. Yeah, there's a depth, almost a, a spiritual element to For sure. his exploration and creativity. He also throws in a lot of constraints, like he mentioned. He'll throw in different times and beats and things like that to, to navigate it. So if you're interested in creativity, that might be one to explore. I am curious for you, though. Do you believe you need a deep love of the craft you're in to become great at it? I do, Sean. Uh, I I think it's a it's a I think it's a non-negotiable. Um, you know, I think if you don't really love what you do, like the notion of active curiosity, that when it works, it's when it's it comes from a place of authenticity. You're just so curious and excited and passionate about the field you're in um, that you're just going to take good extra mile, you know, work on a weekend, whatever it takes to kind of. Uh, you're going to have dreams about kind of the industry. It just, it consumes you, right? I think, um, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm sure there's people who've done very well with that, that passion. So I don't want to say it's a total, um, it's, it's an absolute, but I, I'd say, you know, if you, it's just, you're spring loading yourself much better. If, you, if that's your starting point, uh, if you, if you give me people who are passionate and self-aware, I, you know, we can work with them. You know, those are the two, two kind of raw ingredients I think you need. And I even use the term love. Like you really love what you do, right? A lot of people like what they do. Um, and I think that will get, can get you to a good place, but there's probably a ceiling there. Uh, if you love what you do, I think there, um, you know, I think the potential is, is in many cases limitless. How did that show up for you in the early days? How did you know, or were you still just kind of, you know, tapping your cane in the fog in the early days, trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden you realized there was a, a certain depth of love you had for the craft. More cane in the fog. You know, I think I, 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 I knew I liked it. I knew it was intriguing to me. There were some things that really resonated with me. And then, you know, when I really, where I, you know, where we started, like this, those investing as a platform for self-discovery, when I realized like, wow, this is, this is tremendous. You know, I get to learn so much about myself, magnify what's good, try to fix what's bad. Like that just became almost a passion project, right? Um, and that's where it was clearly about building portfolios and generating uh, performance for clients. Um, but having a parallel journey that contributed to that, that was, uh, you know, trying to figure things out as it relates to myself and building the team. Uh, that can stand the test of time and really conquer the base rates of the industry. And that's, um, from a design standpoint, I've just become 
uh, incredibly curious and passionate about how to solve for, for some of those um, challenges that are just intrinsic. So I would say I always liked the industry. Um, I'm not, I have to think about when it tipped to love, but um, I would say at least, it's been at least a decade where I've thought, you know what, I can't, I can't see myself doing anything but, but this. It's just too, it's just too interesting. And the problems and uh, opportunities just come in ever changes, ever changing shapes and sizes. So um, it's, it's hard not to, to kind of keep that heartbeat going. You sent me over some notes as we were preparing for this conversation. You said game selection and design. Mm. I'd love to know what you want to dive into there. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways a Kobayashi reference I talked about. It's just like, make sure you design your game in tune with who you are uh, and where you can differentiate yourself and then build a toolkit that's highly aligned with that, right? So uh, for us, it's about long-term, you know, we play the long-term game, right? And so you have long-term capital. Uh, and so that's an advantage, right? Because we're very kind of candid with clients. Here's what we're going to do well. Here's two, the environment's going to be tougher for us. We're very transparent on the front end. So um, making sure with that long-term timeframe, you have a toolkit that enables long-term performance, right? So for instance, if you were trying to outperform the market every quarter or every month, let's take an extreme, every month, uh, you would need an incredibly broad toolkit, right? Like you need to pivot your portfolio every month to kind of catch the flavor of the day. Um, and that's fine, right? That can work for managers. Uh, I don't ever kind of say there's one way to do things, but you just need alignment. Like what's, what, what are the tools you have instead of aligned with the game you're playing? If you're playing a longer term game, for instance, like you can have a very, you can have a more narrow toolkit, right? If it's too narrow, then you run the risk of like exploration, like that toolkit just being in the right place, right time and the world changes uh, and you're out of luck. Um, so it's just being pragmatic about like, what is the game you're playing? Um, do you have a toolkit aligned with that? Do you have a capital base in our field that's aligned with that? Um, and then what are you trying to do on a day-to-day basis, right? Like if you're just doing all blocking and tackling, how does that align with kind of the game you're playing, right? Is it truly sustainable? Uh, are you, and so for us, it's about how do you balance blocking and tackling with research and development? How do you balance like building compounding knowledge, right? That makes the whole team better and creates durability. And, and so uh, how do you incentivize people based on the game you're playing, right? The way you keep score uh, defines the game you're going to play. So, um, and then how do you, you know, we always want to, create luck, right? Luck is a, I read a great quote, luck is a residue, residue of design, right? So how can you design your organization in a way that you just, you just expose yourself to good luck, right? Over time, good fortune. So I think for us, um, holistically, or for me, holistically, just thinking about game selection. Um, and frankly, you know, we were in a very privileged position. We picked a game early on, not to get too in the weeds by the investing, but we picked a game which was didn't have much competition, non-US growth at the time. We launched it in 2004 uh, for a variety of reasons. So it wasn't a very competitive field, right? And so um, it's a great time. It's a great, it's the, you know, it's, it's the best possible scenario where you have something that's differentiated in the field where there's very little competition. Um, yeah, you'd love to kind of tap as many, any veins like that as you can. So um, that notion of game selection, being very mindful, it's again, zooming out before you zoom in. What's the game you're playing? Do you have a toolkit aligned with that? Um, how are you keeping score? 
uh, just out, you know, asking this question. So just being mindful of it, I think is, is really important in, in any walk of life. You said you want to increase the luck. How do you strategically do that? Yeah, it's, um, that's, that's a great question. I think for, for us, this is not, a, um, doesn't have to be for everyone. Uh, it's about having an entrepreneurial nature. So, you know, I think taking, taking risks, uh, capitalizing on things that come in front of you with a kind of a positive, optimistic mindset. I think, um, I think too many firms and, yeah, I see uh, Paul Black, um, you know, talks about this a lot. You know, a lot of firms get too caught up in a vision. Now, here's my five-year vision of what I want to be. And you end up, if you're just too laser focused on a vision, you can miss what's right in front of you, right? Uh, opportunities right in front of you and you just are too focused on you know, where you want to go in an abstract sense. So having a, having a firm that, um, you know, plants a lot of seeds um, and will uh, invest in long-term research and development will not be too uh, hardcore about kind of near-term pay, payback periods on things. Uh, let play in the long game. Uh, you know, having, having kind of guardrails for accountability, but you know, making sure we're we're kind of taking various kind of bets, and 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 this is not even just on the portfolio; it's just different initiatives to make our research process and philosophy better. Um, and so, there's lots of examples of that 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 we kind of in, you know, incubate things, let them uh, build ownership around them, let people run with ideas. So, I think one thing we've done well is really build an entrepreneurial culture, and I think that in many ways, just tips you towards good outcomes, right? Or for, you know, fortune, when something does kind of spring to be something big, you're there, right? You had something, you were focused on it, uh, maybe when it wasn't in vogue. So um, I, I think that's important. And then, you know, some of the stuff we've already talked about, reflection, we carving out time for creativity. I think that almost definitionally will tip you towards, you know, potentially at least being, being lucky over time. Yeah, you mentioned Paul Black. He was on back on episode 312. Um, ep excellent episode. I still get a lot of emails about. So if you guys are interested in that, check that out. I'm curious, Sanjay, you mentioned there that entrepreneurial drive and that spirit within the firm. And you said you build that. Can that be built by bringing in people without an entrepreneurial mindset and developing that? Or does it have to start where they, they are hardwired with an entrepreneurial spirit and they get thrown into the system? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's I think you can nudge people, right? To to you know people who might not believe in themselves enough to take those entrepreneurial bets, just maybe a little more risk averse. I think uh, I think you can nudge them out of that, and I think especially you know I I, I think in investing, there you know people get sabotaged. Some it almost sabotages people from like innate creativity. So. You know, I think you want to be mindful of when you're interviewing someone or you're hiring someone, um, you know, do they say things that surprise you? Do they show some entrepreneurial bent? Maybe that's been quashed in the firms they've worked at, but is, it, is, there, is there some fire there, right? I think that's important, um, even if it hasn't manifested itself in, you know, high levels of entrepreneurialism. So um, I think you need, um, and we try to tease this out through our hiring, I think you do need some element of uh, betting on yourself, taking risks. You know, when we hire people, we're much more focused on the arc of their career trajectory 
we could care less about school they went to or number of, you know, whatever CFAs and, and, and other degrees they have. It's about kind of where did you start and where were you, where you are today? Uh, how did you take, you know, when did you bet on yourself? Um, so I, you know, I think, our, you know, I think you can nudge certain people uh, into more of an entrepreneurial mindset, but I think it's very hard if uh, there's just, you have no evidence of any fire along those lines to, to really create something out of it. Yeah, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I'm curious, what else are you trying to tease out in that hiring process? Yeah, Sean, I think as far as the qualities we look for, um, yeah, I think the non-negotiables would be people who love, you know, truly love what they do, the craft of investing, um, self-awareness is critical. And then just given the industry and the ups and downs, resilience would be kind of a third kind of permission to play quality. And then when you get beyond that, yeah, I just jumped to the the core values of our research team, which one is uh, think different, which, you know, my shorthand for for evaluating that is, you know, during interviews, just keeping a tally mark anytime someone says something that makes me think, oh, that's interesting, you know, whatever it is that makes me, uh, I think that correlates well with kind of that think different mindset. Uh, second would be get better. Um, and that for me is really scoping out the trajectory of, of the person's journey. Um, if not career, uh, you were less, much less worried about, you know, pedigree, credentials, what have you, just much more interested in the slope of kind of where that person, um, you know, has come over time and how they've grown. And, and the last core value is kind of make the team better, um, which, you know, distilling down that team mindset can be a challenge. A lot of people in this industry have been trained uh, to self-optimize uh, for themselves. Um, but for the, just in our culture, it's really important that people wake up thinking, how can I make the collective better? And, and some of the qualities, um, you know, we look for their active curiosity, of course, and, um, you know, with the founder's mentality, people who, regardless of literal ownership uh, in the business, really pack. Uh, and feel like owners uh, of what we do. Um, and then the last point is, you know, you know, as we alluded to earlier, I think we just have a strong preference for an entrepreneurial gene. Um, this is, a, yeah, I think WCM is a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure type type uh, journey here. If you want a defined role, uh, you can have it, but we tend to prefer people who uh, really push the boundaries of what they, uh, of kind of their scope of their work and, you know, really reinvent or, or even invent their own roles um, uh, over time. So I think that captures a lot of it. Our processes are very uh, methodical, I would say, as far as hiring and evaluating talent. But those are, you know, several of the qualities that that come to mind immediately. So Sanjay, say you could not invest, you had to walk away from WCM for the next three years. What would you love just spending time on over the next three years? Yeah, I'm a huge sports fan. And there's always, you know, I'm a, I, I love that world. It's got, you know, comparable components to what we do. So if you, if I was in investing and you made me a general manager for a, a basketball team or something, I'd probably... Uh, I'd probably enjoy that. Um, what you know. insights do you have that you're not <laughs> seeing general managers execute on right now that you would bring into your organization? You know, I think you're starting to see the scales tip, but just thinking different, right? I think a lot of these, these you know, 
these uh, industries are still, uh, uh, sports are still stuck in the past, right? So you start to see with the money ball phenomenon, um, you know, people start to think, uh, think differently and introduce um, you know, more first principles thinking. Uh, but even simple things like, you know, Michael Mobison talks about, hey, if you're an underdog, you should introduce luck into the game. If you're a heavy favorite, you want to simplify the game as much. I think that's a highly like intuitive, you know, pragmatic take. And so, yeah, if you were a team and you're a 20 point underdog in a football game, you should probably do some kind of crazy off off the wall things to t- you know just create complexity and luck, introduce luck, and and maybe tip the scales to your to your to your team's favor. And um, yeah, I think you've seen Super Bowls where I think it was the Eagles did an onside kick, you know, to start the game. I think that's. Um, and that's I, I, to me, my mind. You don't see enough of that, right? In tennis, for instance, like um, I think if you invented an artificial intelligence tennis player, uh, they would play the game dramatically different, probably than the <laughs> the way the game's been played, right? They'd probably do crazy drop shots all the time, do uh, weird sir, yeah, you know, just like create all sorts of angles and different types of element. But I think there's just that that's a sport that's just so steeped in tradition. And there's a way things the game's supposed to be played that you know it's been resistant to a yeah. lot of change, and and so I'm always intrigued by hey if you really introduce kind of first principles thinking into into these sports what would they look like? So who knows? I'd probably flame out in any of these fields. <laughs> would it be an interesting interesting journey to to try out? And if I didn't do that, I'd probably be an entrepreneur of some sort. Well, you'd definitely be thinking differently. So Sanjay, final one here. Say you could do this: sit down, long form interview, anyone dead or alive. Who would you love to sit down with and just ask questions of? You know, I guess I'd do someone that people I admire, Sean, and people I admire are probably people who have been successful and are still very humble. So since we're talking about sports at top of mind, like Carlos Alcaraz, like you look at that kid, 20 something years old, just like how... Hum, I mean, number one player in the world, I think, or at least was, like just how humble he was and how he reacted to that U.S. Open loss in his interview about like, hey, this just taught me I need to, I'm not up to snuff, I need to get better. Like, you know, that's just, that's next level thinking at that age. And so uh, I'm sure, you know, yeah, you could just learn a ton talking to someone like that. And it may, it would be fun, you know, he seems like a really kind of positive, energetic young young kid who has a lot to you know, the best is ahead of him. Um, so that's you know, kind of one person that jumps to mind. Sanjay, this has been great. I think we've only hit the the tip of the iceberg here in, in topics we could explore that I would love to at some point. But where do you want the listeners staying connected with what you guys are doing at WCM? Yeah, I think we are, um, you know, WCM, It's we've been through this journey of kind of starting from a more insular firm and are now kind of... Um, you know, being big, I mean, bit for more of a known quantity, but yeah, we're, we're out there. We, yeah, we're on LinkedIn. You know, we're, uh, we do very, a few podcasts here and there. We don't do too much media, but, uh, we're always hiring. We're always looking for great people opportunistically. Um, and so, uh, yeah, feel free to, if anyone, if any of this resonates with anyone, you know, feel free to reach out and, um, you know, we'd love to chat. Great. Well, thanks again. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.